The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Please remain standing if you're able to turn in your scriptures to Ephesians chapter 3. We're reading the first 13 verses. You'll find that on page 977 of your Pew Bible. Ephesians 3 and the first 13 verses. This is the Word of God. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel." Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things." So that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in their heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Give unto us now, O Lord our God, wisdom and insight and understanding from your word. We confess without you we can do nothing in speaking or hearing. There is no blessedness of you unless you choose to bless us. So we pray, Lord, bless us so. Bless us with the working of your Spirit, that eyes and our hearts might be opened and enlightened, and we might take heart, never losing it, in spite of suffering. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I wonder what you would think if you received the most amazing news of liberty, of peace, and of joy. But the person from whom you received that news is not able to enjoy liberty themselves. Such was the case for the Ephesians as they read Paul's letter, the very section that he wrote, which we've just read. As they read it, they're enjoying the wonderful liberty of salvation. But where is Paul? He's locked up. He's under house arrest, not enjoying the peace, the liberty of the fellowship of the people of God. He can't be with the Ephesians. He is unable to see them. 
And Paul is concerned that his circumstances might undermine his message. And so he deals with the issue of of his circumstances head on. He starts chapter 3, speaking of his office and who he is, and then diverts his attention, his train of thought, to deal with his circumstances and the effect that his circumstances of imprisonment might have upon the Ephesians. And he does this by describing God's purposes of the mystery of Christ. God's purposes of the mystery of Christ and God's purposes in the church. And Paul sees this as the antidote to fear and doubt among the Ephesians. That's why he finishes the section with the words, do not lose heart. He writes all this about the mystery, about his office, his stewardship, the purpose of the church, so that they might not lose heart. They might realize that his circumstances have no bearing whatsoever upon the plan of God. Indeed, his circumstances are the method or the means by which the plan of God is realized. And the way Paul does this is in two parts. First of all, in verses 1 to 6, he speaks of the stewardship given to him, the stewardship of the mystery of Christ. The stewardship of the mystery of Christ. And then secondly, in verses 7 to 13, he deals with the purposes of that mystery, what the mystery produces in life and in history. Again, He doesn't want his circumstance to cause doubt and fear in the Ephesians, so he deals with his circumstances head on. He speaks firstly in verses 1 to 6 of the stewardship of the mystery of Christ given to him. Now, this is an unusual passage in that verse 1, Paul starts a prayer, which he then breaks off at the end of verse 1 and returns to it in verse 14. If you've got your Bibles, you can really see that at work. He says in verse 1, for this reason, based on what he's said before, he's going to pray for them. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and perhaps your your, uh, text there has a dash in it then, And there's a side thought from verse 2 all the way to verse 13, assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. He then returns to his thought in verse 14. He says the same words, for this reason, just like he did in verse 1, I bow my knees before the Father, and he tells them once again of what he is praying for them. In other words, it looks like his thought process in an inspired fashion, has become derailed or diverted, diverted to deal with the problem of his own circumstances. He doesn't want them to lose heart because he's in prison. That's the derailing, as it were, element at the end of verse 1. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on your behalf of you Gentiles, he would have carried on saying, I bow the knee before my father. But instead, he speaks of his office. Instead, he speaks of stewardship. He speaks of his apostleship. And particularly, he speaks of the mystery. Verses 2 to 6 lay out for us this mystery that was given for Paul to declare. 
He's going to speak to them of something that was not, but now is, and is now being revealed throughout the world, and has remarkable purposes in the life of the Ephesians and of us Christians. So we're going to focus, as he does, on his stewardship and the stewardship of the mystery. Notice the peculiar calling he says he has there in verse 2. He breaks off and says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. He wants them to understand something special about himself, not Paul, but the apostle, what God has given him, what God has done for him. He says he was given a stewardship of God's grace or a stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. And there's two main points there. Firstly, there's Paul as steward. Secondly, there's God as giver of the stewardship. Paul as the steward, God as the giver of the stewardship. Consider Paul as steward. uh, steward. Paul is the chief conduit conduit at this point in, in redemptive history, the chief conduit through which the Gentiles were reached. That was his peculiar calling, not that his calling excluded the Jews, for we know that every city he went to, he went to the synagogue first, and then he moved to the Gentiles. And we know this because we see it in Acts chapter 9, that after he was confronted by Christ on the road to Damascus, Ananias was told this by the Lord himself. The Lord said to him, go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. That's why he's talking about a stewardship given him by God for the Ephesians who were Gentiles. And we see the effects also of that stewardship. We turn the page in Acts again to chapter 14 and verse 26, where we read these words. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That's the stewardship, the peculiar stewardship given to Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And we know it was alleged of the apostles that through their preaching of Christ, they had turned the world upside down, and indeed they had. But it was not just the world that was turned upside down. It was Paul's world that had also been turned upside down. What a peculiar calling this was to the Jew of Jews, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, to declare who? Christ, whom he previously hated, to the Gentiles, whom he also previously hated. What a remarkable irony, a world turned upside down by the power of God that Paul should preach the Christ to the Gentiles. It's a powerful paradigm in Paul's life that he should be set apart for this peculiar stewardship. And he was set apart by God. Yes, he was the steward, but the stewardship, he says, was given to me by God. We read back in Acts chapter 9, God says to Ananias, he is a chosen vessel of mine, that he should declare my name amongst the Gentiles. 
And we understand, friends, that was always and ultimately God's purpose in salvation. That it's not just the Israelites, not just the Jews, who should have God and the gospel of Christ preached to them, but in the end, the whole world. That, that's built into the Abrahamic promises, is it not? In your seed, Christ, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This was God's will. And in time, we saw just little hints of that. Jonah is sent to the Gentiles in Nineveh. We see it in the prophecy, prophecies of Isaiah, of Ezekiel, of Joel. We see the Gentiles being brought in, at least prophecies of such. And in the history of Israel, we saw Gentiles individually attaching themselves to God's people. Rahab, who was a Canaanite, becoming a member of the household of God. We read of Uriah the Hittite being a member of the household of Israel. But now, Paul is saying, in the fullness of time, the mystery is being revealed that the gospel should go unto the Gentiles. This was a commission given him by God, a stewardship according to God's purpose. And he says, this stewardship is for you, Ephesians, the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. He's telling them, in spite of my circumstances, prison, the for you there is very important. It's almost as if he's saying, I have already fulfilled God's purpose for you. In spite of my circumstance, don't lose heart. But then he goes on in the text to tell us more about the mystery. We've seen his stewardship, but it's a stewardship of a mystery. Verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have briefly or written briefly. He's speaking of a mystery. Now, it's not like a murder mystery or whodunit. They're trying to find something out. It's a mystery which he tells us was not revealed, but now has been revealed. And the rest of verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 speak to us of that mystery. Even verse 9. Verse 9 says the mystery was hidden from all ages in God. In other words, it's an eternal purpose. This is not just something that popped up in time. God has always planned this mystery, whatever it is. Verse 5, it was a mystery not known to the sons of men in the manner in which it has now been revealed. He says again, verse 5, that mystery has now been revealed by God's holy apostles and prophets. And it was a mystery that was given to Paul, verse 3, by specific revelation. Christ himself instructed Paul in this mystery. So what in the world is this mystery? Well, he tells us there in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery that's been revealed. The mystery that was once hidden, the mystery that was from all ages past, eternity past, has now been revealed. This is staggering news to us. It should be anyway. It should be still the more staggering considering who is writing this. 
the Christ-hater, the Gentile-hater, says this. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, with whom the Jews. Members of the same body, with whom believing Jews. And partakers of the promise, with whom believing Jews. He's summarizing, in a sense, the whole previous chapter, at least from verse 11 on. The Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews. To them belongs the fatherhood of God. They're members of the same body, now one in Christ, as Pastor Ocken preached a few weeks back. There is a new Israel, a new humanity, and it's not just ethnic Jews, it's ethnic Gentiles with ethnic Jews. And they're partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ. That is to say, they also have received Christ, and the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon them so that all of God's promises are unto them as they were unto believing Jews. You might be thinking, well, that's really nice, but so what? What difference does it make to me? I mean, this is for people written 2,000 years ago, Neely. What difference does it make to you? Does it speak to me where I am? I want to tell you, friends, nothing could speak to you more this night than what we've just read. Because look around now. I know you're not going to because we're Presbyterians, but those behind can look forward. But if we did, we could look around and see this very mystery outworked here on this night. That the Gentiles, we, have been brought into the household of God. We have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the church of Jesus Christ. And to be in it is more precious than anything else we can know. To be here this night, more wonderful than any other place than we can imagine. It has everything to do with you right now. You have been brought in according to this mystery. Without this plan, you and I would not be here. Without this mystery revealed 2,000 years ago in the coming of Christ, without this eternal plan of God, we would not be here worshipping him tonight, delighting in him and delighting in each other. Friends, it's not through treaties or alliances or, as this world likes to say, through education that your lot has been eternally improved. It's by the gospel of God's own Son, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Isn't this wonderful? Partakers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not by anything we've done. Not by any merit by ourselves. Simply the plan of the mystery of Christ revealed in time and preached by his servant and others like him that we are here this day. It's remarkable. (coughs) Friends, in other words, God has set his love upon you if you are a Christian. If you're a sincere Christian, 
tonight. God has set his love upon you, and once he has set his love upon you, that love shall never, ever depart, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what you might go through in life. Once God has loved you, he will never let you go. That's a truth for the ages. It's a truth for every circumstance in your life, in my life, in the Ephesians' life. It was a truth for all suffering, all trial, all changes in our lives. And that's actually one of the purposes that Paul is writing about this, that he might strengthen their hand and strengthen their hearts, that they may not lose heart and stand firm. And that takes us to verse 7. Paul introduces now the purposes for why he is writing uh, about his office and this mystery. Verse 7 to 13 speak about the purposes of Paul's stewardship. And in verse 7, he continues talking about his office. Uh, And we've really covered what he says here of this gospel. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So he's really saying that, yes, I'm an apostle, but it was given me. I didn't earn it. I had no rights to it. It was given to me by God's grace and by God's power. And then he adds to it these remarkable words in verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints. It's one of those sentences that should leap off the page at every single one of us. Because I'm not sure if the Apostle Paul were here today, we would regard him as the least of all the saints. I'm pretty sure we wouldn't. I was thinking about this during my preparation time. If he had a church today, he'd probably either have five people in it or 5,000 people in it, one or the other. Because his preaching would either be so radical, nobody would want to be with him, or his preaching would be so amazing, everyone would want to be with him. But I don't think we think of Paul as the least of all the saints. I think he means two things by this statement. The least of all the saints in the sense that he was born, as he says, out of time elsewhere. He wasn't part of the original group of believers. He he wasn't part of them. He required an extraordinary work after the resurrection of Christ. He became an apostle after all the other apostles. But I think he's also speaking here, certainly, out of a disposition of great humility. This is Paul, a man of remarkable faith. He'd preach the gospel to anyone regardless of the circumstances. He had to escape cities by being lowered down over the wall in a basket. Great Paul. Sacrificial Paul. The theology of which, uh, of Paul, we could only dream of having in his understanding. Yet he saw himself as the least. The least of the saints because he knew who he was. He knew who he was, the chief of sinners. Christian, you're called to see yourself as Paul saw himself. Is it your disposition 
your supernatural disposition to think of yourself in these terms, that I am the least of all the saints. It needs to be. We should all be able to say that of ourselves. And with that, in verses 8 to 10, Paul moves then to the purposes of his calling. Why was he called? What does God seek to achieve? What is his plan for Paul's ministry? And he gives three purposes here. Uh, Three purposes which are, are, are written for us. First of all, in verse 8, he was called to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's the first purpose statement. Given to me to preach so that I might preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. We're back in that Pauline language that we've seen already in the epistle seven times. Language of wealth, language of greatness, language of glory, the riches of God's grace he's spoken of in chapter 1 verse 7. And he said in chapter 1 verse 8 that the riches of that grace have been lavished upon us. He's spoken in chapter 118 of the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And here he now speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Let that language sink in for a moment. Unsearchable riches of Christ. One theologian speaks of riches without footprint untraceable, unmeasurable. Literally, I think the Greek speaks of unfathomable riches of Christ. Can't be measured. Riches upon riches, grace upon grace. Grace without measure. Not just that we can't measure it because we're finite, but actually literally infinite grace because Christ is infinite. That is to say, his grace is without measurement, not just that it can't be measured. Such grace belongs to Christ. And remarkably, friends, such grace belongs to the Christian who is united to Christ by faith. What does it mean, the unsearchable riches of Christ? Well, I've spoken about the unsearchable bit, but the riches of Christ are those riches to which we have no entitlement by right. No entitlement to God's favor, because naturally we were alienated from God. We also were strangers to the covenants and the promises. We were without hope. We were without God. Think of yourself here, friends, that we, according to God's grace, should be granted entry into his family and enjoy full communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That we, we, you, me, should have all our sins washed away. That we should possess the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone that we should be sons and daughters of the living God. Unsearchable, beyond measure, beyond our best reckoning. 
that we should have the hope of resurrection and eternal life implanted deeply into our hearts. Friends, we could keep trying to describe the unsearchable riches of Christ, but not only are they unsearchable, they're also indescribable. So great are they. That's the first purpose, that that preaching of the unsearchable riches of Christ should be brought to us Gentiles. The second purpose, then, is verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. I'm not going to deal with every clause and every phrase. I just, we don't have time. But he's saying here what essentially he said above in verses 5 and 6. The purpose of his preaching was bring to light so that everyone might see the plan of God that Jew and Gentile should receive the gospel. He says it's been hidden from all ages. It's the eternal plan of God, more or less hidden in the old covenant, but now in the fullness of time in Christ revealed that the gospel is going to all nations. And these two purposes, in my estimation, lead us to a third great purpose in verse 10. Notice he says, so that, a lot of debate about this verse, but it says, so that, another purpose clause, through the church, again, notice that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Isn't that a staggering purpose statement? Verse 9 deals with humanity. Everyone on earth might know, Jew and Gentile joined together in one. Now he moves to the spiritual realm, that all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places should also know the purpose of God in the church. Now, as I said, there's much debate about who these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are. We've seen that language already used of of Satan and his, his demons. The language itself doesn't tell us one way or another. It could simply be the angelic host loyal to God that serves and worship God. It could be Satan and all his demons, or it could simply refer to the whole spiritual realm, good or bad alike. You can do your research on this and come to your own conclusion, but I'm going to tell you what I think it is. I think what Paul is saying here is that in the church, in the church, the whole spiritual realm gets to witness the wisdom of God as he brings together those who were formerly apart. The whole spiritual realm, those angels that love and serve God, those angels that hate him and despise him and work against him, they all get to see, what do we read? The manifold wisdom of God through the church. They all get to see it. Consider this, of the angelic host loyal to God that serves him, We're taught in Scripture that they have a great interest in what goes on in the life of the church. We're told in Luke 15, they rejoice when one sinner repents. 1 Corinthians 11 intimates that angels have a vital interest in corporate worship. 1 Peter 1.12 tells us that angels desire and long to look into that which is being revealed to us. 
Yes, they most certainly have an interest in what is going on in the church. In other words, these angels in the presence of God see the uniting of that which was divided and see the wisdom of God and praise him for his amazing, glorious, perfect wisdom. God is praised by his angels when they see the church of Christ. But I think in like manner, we can see what this means to Satan. What pleases Satan and his angels more than division in the church of Christ? And here Paul is saying the church is comprised of those who were formerly alienated. And the church is proof that Christ's death and resurrection has resolved what was for Paul the greatest division in human history, Jew and Gentile have been made one new man. What does Satan think when he looks upon the church? He knows his days are numbered. As he can see the effects of Christ's work. Think on this. We wouldn't be here tonight, friends with each other, brothers and sisters in the same church, the same faith, the same Lord. We would simply not be here were it not for the resurrection and ascension of Christ. We'd have no desire to be together. Secular clubs don't love each other as we love each other. But the church is different. And the church is a sign to Satan that his time is up. His days are numbered. His power is broken. And his dominion over us, the people of God, is ended. Did you realize that's what was going on when you walked in those doors tonight? What a staggering testimony of the manifold wisdom of God. Wise beyond what we can imagine, orders all things in our lives and in the life of the church to this end, that his angels will glorify him and Satan and his angels will realize their time is up. You can see where Paul's going with this, can't you? Remember his grand purpose? Verse 13. He makes mention in verse 11 and 12. I'm not going to speak on it for long. Uh, All this was according to the eternal purpose. He realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in Christ our Lord, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. I think that's going to come up in the next section as Paul prays for them more, so I'm going to be brief. Paul's saying all this was plan A. The cross is not plan B of a failed plan A. This was the eternal purpose of God. To thwart the plans of Satan in Christ and reveal it thwarted in the church. And it's all in Christ Jesus in whom we have boldness with access, with confidence through our faith in him. You can see he's building them up. Boldness, access, confidence in our faith in him. In other words, he's building up to this, the point of the whole 13 verses. 
So I ask you, verse 13, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Do you hear what he said, friends, on the back of all this glory, on the back of this wisdom, the remarkable, unsearchable riches of Christ, on the back of this boldness and confidence? What does he tell them? He says, don't lose heart. Don't give in. Don't lose perspective. He's essentially saying, don't even worry about me in prison. Apart from prayer, he's saying, don't give it a second thought. Don't let any doubt enter your minds that God's plan and his kingdom are thwarted by me being in prison. Paul's saying the circumstances of his arrest could not possibly make void the manifold wisdom of God. He's saying that his house arrest could hardly thwart the eternal plan of God. He's telling them that the circumstances of his arrest cannot devalue the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's telling them his circumstances cannot take away their boldness and access that they have in Christ. We're getting the message. And friends, it's the same for us. Truly the same for us. We're not great in number, though we're encouraged by numbers. We're not great in number. There's not many of us here. It's not exactly like what we're doing as part of a popular uprising. But friends, when you come to church and look around and see the faces of each other, do you not see the manifold wisdom of God being made manifest in that very moment? When we see little ones baptized as we saw this morning, do we not see the manifold wisdom of God? Do we not see the unsearchable riches of Christ? Do not we see the eternal plan of God? And we've come here as as well, friends, as brothers and sisters in Christ, a relationship that will outlast even our marriages. Friends, we've not come to this place tonight by signing an alliance or some sort of pact or, or treaty of peace. We've come in the blood of Christ into this place, which is a place of genuine peace and genuine love. These are evidences of the manifold wisdom of God. These are evidences of the eternal plan of God. These are evidence of the unsearchable riches of Christ. These, we are evidences of Satan's power destroyed. Think on that, the uniting power of Jew and Gentile, of us together this night, is an evidence of Satan's own destruction, that his plans are inferior to the plans of God. Satan's separating powers, his dividing powers, have been broken, and Christ's uniting powers have triumphed. In us. Friends, if that doesn't make us stand firm, I don't know what will. 
Paul says this to them. He says it to us. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering. Well, Paul's not suffering for us anymore, but we will encounter our own suffering. No matter what's going on in our personal lives, no matter matter what's going on in our family lives, no matter what's going on in our country or who wins elections, no matter the real and manifold suffering of the Christian in this life, it is real, it is painful. Remember what the psalmist says? Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. It's not in political parties. It's not in education. It's not in social movements or self-improvement. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Friends, don't lose heart. In the day of trouble, the day of struggle, the day of suffering, just as Paul's suffering, which he says here, which is your glory, let us also be reminded, friends, that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glories that shall be revealed in us. Let's pray.